Welcome to The Mocking Cast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and RJ Heyman. We come to you every other week to discuss a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. We're glad to have you with us. October is here. It's the month of Halloween. It's the month of Reformation Day. It's the month of my son's uh, birthday. And I believe it's also the month of Sarah and Josh Conan's wedding anniversary. It is. Today is 15 years. Oh, my goodness. What's yeah. the, what are your reflections? What, what, what lessons do you have? What's the secret? <laughs> uh, what's the secret? Um, well, forgiveness is a secret to everything. So uh, that would be, for, even when you don't want to and you're really pissed, like when he's opening the door and he knows you're recording a podcast. Did you guys hear that? Um, Spoiler alert. Yep. Yeah. Uh, it's weird, like the economy of marriage, because it feels like when I think of everything that we've like been through, I'm like, oh my gosh, it feels longer or something. You know what I mean? Like in a really beautiful way, but you're like, whoa, that has been a full 15 years. Mm. And I guess it's the season. I don't know. Or maybe they all feel like that. I don't know. RJ, you've been married for 40 years. How does yours feel? Yeah, you guys are celebrating your golden anniversary exactly. soon. Right? <laughs> it's, I will be. It is wild to look at your spouse and be like, how are you that? I mean, we were, I was 19 and she was 20 when we met. And it's like, how how did we have three children together? How have we bought houses and lived this crazy life? And um, I find myself being just unbelievably grateful for who I'm married to because I just, I feel like I got the best person in the world. Um, but it's bizarre. It is bizarre, man. Yeah. Yeah. We were, it's like we were just total kids. Even when we had our first kid, we were kids. Oh, for you know, I sure. I look at pictures now of myself with Jackson in my arms, and I'm like, oh my gosh, who gave that, you know, who I gave know. that 14 year old kid a baby? <laughs> I know. Who decided that was a good idea? Yeah. You know, um, it's wild. Wow. It is wild. It is. Well, we're going to talk about generations and sort of the, the different epochs of our lives in a little bit. Um, you guys doing okay, though? RJ, I think you guys, you and Jamie just went on some sort of trip, maybe, right? We did. We were in Austin over the weekend visiting oh, our nice. oldest son at college. He's a sophomore at the University of Texas and it was also Austin City Limits, which was really fun. Fun. Sarah, any, anything else cooking in, in your neck of the woods? <laughs> We, well, we're going to, in true 15th wedding anniversary fashion, take our kid out to dinner with us tonight. Our 10th wedding anniversary, there was like a fair at the school and the church, and there was a massive rainstorm, and someone had a panic attack, and they had to call an ambulance, and I was like... Uh, this is a happy 10th wedding anniversary. So I found a bottle of wine. There are always random bottles of wine tucked in corners of Episcopal churches. And this was not communion wine. And I found a random bottle of like bad Cabernet and opened it up with six plastic cups with the people who are standing in the room. And we like cheers our 10th wedding anniversary. So good good story though, sir. I mean, but like, I just feel like I I know that for wedding anniversary, they're supposed to be this, fixed thing and I kind of like that like tonight it's like randomly we have one kid home we're not need a babysitter for one kid so we're gonna mm. take her out to fancy dinner I don't know it's just it's cool She'll maybe that's it. just me making up for the fact that I want like a 
Like a grand gesture if you're listening, Josh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> he, he will listen. He will listen, but it will be after the... Uh, it, will. it will not be the same The same day. I um, Guys, thanks for asking me how I'm doing. Yeah, it's, how you doing, Dave? Yeah, right? <laughs> we never ask. We, you we know, know this is a joke in our household every night at dinner. I mean, I've told you this before, but like we, we all check in. How's it going? How's it going? How's it going? And then Josh always says, like, I'm the Dave. Because he's always like, thanks for asking, guys. <laughs> doing great. Well, hey, it is a sort of a big week for me. I finished yeah. the draft of my book. Amazing. Which Praise is God. like, it's still, you know, miles to go uh, course, in terms of citations and, deal, and uh, editing. But yeah, um, it's called, you know, we, we've settled on a subtitle, Low Anthropology, the Unlikely Key to a Gracious View of Other People and Yourself. I love it. I cannot mm. wait to read it. I'm so excited well, for you. Thank you. Um, so I've been telling my wife for 22 years, keep your expectations low. <laughs> <laughs> that's Maybe that's the actual secret. It's a secret. Low anthropology. <laughs> um, well, actually, you know, when, when, if, when it comes out, people will have to... Um, the spot, the RJ reference in there, because there's Sarah, you're, 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 you're named in there, RJ. You have a lengthy thing that is uh, not under your own name for reasons <laughs> that will become obvious. Oh, sweet. I'm just kidding. I look forward to I'll it. run it by you later. Um, <laughs> Uh, this re- I just want to cut. <laughs> <laughs> I no. mean, those religion books make a lot of money, so get right. Yeah, exactly. Watch out, guys. <laughs> well, we're gonna we got tons to discuss today, and the first thing is uh, about travel. Travel is not a really subject we've ever talked about much on here outside of our personal travels, but also because of COVID in the last 18 months, travel has been so constrained and, or it's just, it's been restricted to, to, you know, necessary things, or it's just, it's always, it's very different. Um, I'm about to jump on an airplane tomorrow and it's just, it's, Mm. I've never been super excited about airports, but I'm less excited about them now. But this is by Jen Rose Smith in the Washington Post who writes, you are a different person when you travel. She quotes a, a woman, a sociologist named Karen Stein, who wrote a book called Getting Away From It All, Vacations and Identity. She argues that travel is a chance to try out alternate identities, a temporary respite from ourselves. Stein says, travel is a time that is sort of set aside from our everyday lives. It can create a flexibility, both mental flexibility and flexibility of social structures that allow us to see things in a different way, have different experiences or do things a little bit differently. In Stein's view, people don't just have one identity. Instead, they have many, a collection of possible selves that alternate, that alternate and evolve over time. One version might be familiar to coworkers, another best suited to our roles as parents, children, or friends. Uh, they go on to say that in 2020, American workers with paid time off used just 11.6 days overall, leaving 33% of their vacation time on the table. Uh, this is, you know, about our conflicted time with, with vacation. And those figures, already dismal when compared with other rich countries, exu- exclude millions of Americans whose jobs don't include paid time off. And so there, there's, uh, some of these experts are suggesting a grown-up gap year. Mm-hmm. A midlife version of the same time students take off before attending college, a chance for people to discover parts of themselves sidelined by career or family life, an opportunity to hop off, quote, this track that people sort of see laid out ahead of them. And then uh, as sort of a final PS, uh, hopping on a plane or many planes doesn't mean you'll find yourself. Travel can be really transformative, but it's not guaranteed, says psychologist Jamie Kurtz. Although spending a boozy week in Las Vegas or Cancun might express a side of your identity unfamiliar to family and coworkers, it's not exactly a fast track to personal growth, RJ. Um, 
<laughs> Busted. Does this resonate with you guys? What do you think? Uh, do we have multiple identities? Do do you like travel for this reason, or is do do you not vibe with this at all? I mean, I just think this is like real privilege. It's just funny to kind of hear yeah, it. Yeah, like, like, I'm like, okay, yes, thank you okay. for saying like, it. Like, it started off with a lady who like goes on vacation without her family. I'm like, who? I'm sorry, what? I mean, uh, travel would without it like my... a year off. <laughs> yes, I would absolutely yeah, like a year off. But, like from every, please, yes, like, please. Uh, nervous breakdown. It's also, I don't know. I'm like really a pain in the ass to travel with. So I was just interesting. Like, I was like, what's my travel personality? Like, the first 48 hours are Josh being like, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. We're going to have a good time. And I'm like, what's a good time? Is this a good time? Am I having fun? Like right, that's fine. like we were at Disney and he was like the morning, like we're at, we're in Disney and I'm hyperventilating and he comes over and he's like, the kids are watching you and you're kind of ruining it. <laughs> like it's just like, you know, I just, I'm kind yep. of a pain for the first. It takes me a while. So I don't know. I mean, I I feel like, I don't know. We're still ourselves. I don't know. It's like a different personality. Like, we're not that interesting. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I, I, this didn't really resonate with me that much. I mean, there's also such a big movement on um, Instagram of, like, travel as a personality trait. Mm. Um, you know, cause like, I really like to travel. Like I like to travel. I just like to travel. We travel a lot. And it's just I'm like, unmoored, yeah, unwilling to commit. Yeah. I'm you just know? like, I, okay. Like, do you, I don't know. It's, it's travel is like also weirdly tainted. Cause it feels sometimes like people only go, shit. I think I've only gone places sometimes because I get to put a picture of it up on social media. Mm. <gasps> Like, I just, I don't know. I, and wow. people didn't always travel. Like, it's a new thing that we travel. I'm anti-travel. Anti-travel. Nobody gets to go anywhere. Okay. <laughs> Nobody gets to go anywhere. Hot takes over here. I love it. You know, um, I'm, just, I'm, just a, I'm just a nomad, you know? Like, what can I say? I, oh, my uh, God. I can't even watch that. There's that movie that everyone's talking about called Nomad. Just the title of it. I'm like, I'm done. I'm not watching this. I don't care how many awards I get. Well, RJ, uh, do you have a slightly less, <laughs> you know, RJ, do you have a more gracious Hostile take on relationship. Travel? I will also say that I'm difficult when I travel, but for a different reason, which is I travel really for like adventure and exhilaration. And, you know, like this summer we were in North Carolina for a while and I just had to find like, is there a cliff that I can jump off of into a, a cold body of water anywhere within two hours of here? Because we're going there. Finally, oh my, my god my wife is like i am so done with this i just need to chill out why can't you don't you know how to relax i'm like with, no it's always that's with the cliffs and the jumping with rj yeah. vacation i go exactly i go to like um do something not terribly dangerous but mildly dangerous and now i have two teenage sons who can go do mildly dangerous things with me which is really fun and a five-year-old who's crazier than any of us um I I related to some of it. I think the the idea of being someone else when you travel or having the opportunity to be someone else, that resonates with my younger self, mm. I would say. Like that's one of the things I love about um, that movie Lost in Translation mm. with Bill Murray and Sofia Coppola is there is something that when you're in an unfamiliar place by yourself, the world kind of opens up and you sometimes do end up having relationships, romantic or otherwise, with people that w- were would not have been possible if it weren't that you were both kind of in a disembodied space. Mm. So that I that I relate to. Um, I think now, and the other thing is I also recognize at some point that when I went somewhere unfamiliar in my younger days, 
I just got really curious about everything because some suddenly, you know, street signs looked different and and cars looked different and everything looked just different enough that I started to wonder what would it be like to live here. And it was it was sort of um, brought me back into the moment. And I sometimes tried to do that in my regular everyday life, try to get more curious and more in, like to notice things that I might not notice. But now that I'm older, I don't have the power energy to do that <laughs> anymore. Um, I find that harder to do to sort of inhabit that slightly off kilter space where you notice things more specifically. Um, what I will say now is that when I am able to go away for any length of time, sometimes what happens is I realize that all the things I'm concerned about in my so-called important life just aren't really that important and it's going to be okay, you know, and to get a little, it's healthy to get some distance from things that really stress you out sometimes to realize that like, it's going to be okay. Mm. You know, you don't need to be so enmeshed with, you know, um, everything that you think. Get a little, little detachment, little, little, yeah, a little detachment. I think travel is helpful that way. Well, I'll just say it guys. I'm, I'm really good at traveling. (laughs) You you guys are both difficult to travel with. It's one of the things that I've didn't road to almost always surprised by it. Like I, because I traveled so much as a kid and, um, would Kate say that too? Would Kate say you're going to travel? Yes, she actually would. Nice. This is one of the places she's like, Dave comes alive. Is she there? Like, are you sure? (laughs) 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 Guys, I have a hard time saying positive things about myself sometimes so <laughs> just just deal with it it's, you know it, it's uh i i like it and i i feel more myself when i'm traveling to be honest mm. with you because it relates to you know studying abroad and living abroad and yeah. all this stuff and yes there's clearly like a, a privilege element to it except for sure. i don't remember staying in many like n- nice places you know we were, we were you know i remember sleeping on trains and stuff like that um hostels yeah so i feel because i feel a general rootlessness in my life you know just i don't identify with that kind of uh home thing that people have that we've talked about before mm-hmm. I, I find i find i've i feel almost more at ease when, when I'm, when I'm traveling. And, um, so when we had a, a sabbatical a few years ago, that ended up being a really, really wonderful time for our family because mm. it, it kind of brought out a side of me that I'd forgotten about, you know? Mm. And I do, I, I read this thing about people wanting to get out the, get off the track that they feel has been laid out before them. I mean, that's just, that sounds like that's, that's fear. That's midlife. That's, uh, right. you know, that's 38 captivity. Yeah. That's what people, yeah. <laughs> people don't want. But, and I, I recognize that about travel, but I also know that there are, I, I've just dealt with some college students who just got back from uh, a weekend in Las Vegas for fall break. And they're basically saying that they have the biggest moral hangover of their lives. So they did not, they're not enriched in any regard. The people yeah. who stayed here and did other things and went and saw a sibling had a much, much better time. So it's, and I think that, by the way, that the when you say that influencers are sort of like there's this immutable trait about human nature. Oh, I'm just a traveler. Mm-hmm. Um, that that's usually code for something else. I mean, it's it's like <laughs> I'm never satisfied. I'm just constantly you know? running away. I'm just, I, I, yeah. I I can't handle. I I I think the solution to my problems is is another zip code. You know, it's like that's. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's funny. Like I was so harsh, but I do think about how little my parents got to travel and how much they wanted to. And they Mm. went to Puerto Rico with their, their really good friends, Rick and Randy. And they were someplace where you take, it was something cruise. I don't remember, but it's a beach where like people would take the mud and wipe it on their bodies. And I have seen, had seen my dad without a shirt on less than 10 times in my entire life. 
Nam was always fully clothed. Okay. It was like Frazier raised me. And he, um, Tobias Funke. Well, and he was we know standing, about those greeting cards. Yep. I mean, they were like, they're like in their 60s, standing there in their swimsuits, and they have clearly rubbed mud all over each other. And they look so happy. And I was like, who are these people? Mm. You know, like it was just like this, like amazing. Um, and there were so many places. This mom was dying to go to England. Yeah. I mean, she, it's all she ever wanted was to go to England. She didn't care about any place else. And, um, you know, she never got to go. So, oh. yeah, I know. My brother and I talk about that a lot, how we that we want to take a trip. Because England's, I mean, it is, yes, it is a privileged thing to say, but it's not that big a deal to go to England, you know? And and it 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 she never got to go. And so, mm. yeah, I mean, I, I, if I can kind of remove the weirdly irritating social media aspect from it, like there is something so beautiful about mm. being able to see, um, these other places. So. Curiosity and, and adventure. Yeah. I mean, I, I do connote travel with freedom. I, I, not everyone does. Totally. Some people think of it as being confined in an airplane and, and being beholden to other people and not having your stuff around. Mm-hmm. I, I'd rather sort of live without that stuff. And I know that that is somewhat dispositional. Um, and uh, or maybe it's just a desire to escape uh, who I am. But <laughs> I think um, it tra- works either way. Right, Dave? I, I, well, yeah, it works either way. <laughs> I notice people, for example, that they don't make a lot of money, but they, what they save for is are not, you know, additions to a house or a new car. Right. They save for trips. Right. And mm. I think that I, we've talked about it before, but like um, giving gifts uh, that I think um, you can buy kids toys or you can sort of buy and ex- get an experience. And I, I generally think that the experience is, is the, is the more powerful gift. Um, but it also maybe, maybe that's just me talking. RJ, you're, you're says, like, have you says, asked says your the kids man, though? Says the man to- with toys lining the mantelpiece so directly true. behind Literally, his there's head. like a mountain of says plastic toys. Says the man with garbage pail kids. <laughs> yeah. and, All right, uh, he's like, on. I'm experiences. <laughs> moving on. In plastic no, Dave, from you, 1974. You, you, Dave, Dave, I completely agree with you. I, I, I would love nothing more than to take, you know, a certain amount of months mm-hmm. and just, you know, go. Like, I, I love road trips. I just love road trips. I, I love it. Yeah. I love you guys it. are making me feel so um, guilty because Josh is finally maybe going to take a sabbatical after almost like, what, 20 years of, of uh, work uh, this summer. And he's like, I'm thinking about taking like three or four months. I'm like, that's too long. Rain it in. <laughs> We need to be here. I'm the worst. Okay, what's our next article? Our next article is fascinating. It's by Louis Menand in The New Yorker, who says, it's time to stop talking about generations. Now, we talk Mm. about generations quite a bit, and uh, there's a lot of generational talk, of course, in the Bible, which he surfaces. He talks about the concept of a generation being somewhat new. He says, the term is borrowed from human reproductive biology. In a kinship structure, parents and their siblings constitute the older generation. Offspring and their cousins are the younger generations. Uh, The time it takes in our species for the younger generation to become the older generation is traditionally said to be around 30 years. For the fruit fly, it's 10 days. Uh, That is how the term is used in the Bible. He says, uh, around 1800, the term got transplanted from the family to society. The new idea was that people born within a given period, usually 30 years, belong to a single generation. There is no sound basis in biology or anything else for this claim, but it gave European scientists and intellectuals a way to make sense of something they were obsessed with, which was social and cultural change. 
Today, the time span of a generational cohort is usually taken to be around 15 years. People born within that period are supposed to carry a basket of characteristics that differentiate them from people born earlier or later. But this, pre- this supposition requires leaps of faith. For one thing, there is no empirical basis for claiming that differences within a generation are smaller than differences between generations. People talk as though they were a unique, as though there were a unique DNA for Gen X, even though the difference between a baby boomer and a Gen Xer is about as meaningful as the difference between a Leo and a Virgo. He's really going after it. We don't believe in it. <laughs> Decade thinking is also or a two and a nine. <laughs> Hey, now, you know the Enneagrams in the gospel. Keep going, dude. Decade thinking is also deeply embedded. Like, oh, that's, she's a 70s person. He's a, you know, 80s guy. The question, therefore, is not are generations real? The question is, are they helpful, are a helpful way to understand anything? Uh, Bobby Duffy, the author of The Generation Myth, says, yes, but they're not as helpful as people think. Generations are just one of three factors that explain changes in attitudes, beliefs, and behaviors. The others are historical events and life cycle of effects, which is how people change as they age. He says, for example, that attitudes about gender in the United States correlate more closely with political party than with age. And then in Europe, anyway, there are no big age divides in the recognition of climate change. There is, furthermore, just about no evidence that Generation Z is more ethically motivated than other generations. He then cites a survey conducted in 2019 uh, in which people were asked to name the characteristics of baby boomers, Gen Xers, millennials, and Gen Zers. The top five characteristics assigned to Gen Z were tech-savvy, materialistic, selfish, lazy, and arrogant. The lowest-ranked characteristic was ethical. When Gen Zers were asked to describe their own generation, they came up with an almost identical list. I'm a little skeptical of this article, to be honest with you. I, th- I do see yeah. a, a differences in sort of uh, uh, in just working with 20-year-olds over the years. I feel like I, I see increasing uh, different um, uh, values, shall we say. What do you, like, can you expand upon that? Because I've only, you know, I've been doing this for three years. And I just, I'm curious, like, I just, okay, so I say this because, like, yesterday I was on campus and there's this huge line. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what are they giving away? And it was flu shots. And I was like, I would have never stood in line for a flu shot, like, in college. No way. And you can say, oh, it's a pandemic. Still wouldn't have. Would have been like, I'm fine. No, thank you. You know. Um, so like, can you, like, do you have any ops? I'm just curious. Like well, my observations are that the, this generation is much more ethically motivated yeah. in ways that I think are admirable and ways that I think are totally irritating. So it's like, well, it's like, I mean, the, it's, it's totally irritating, but also like law, right? I mean, that's, that's, oh, it's both. Yeah. yeah uh, we yeah. were under a huge amount of pressure as Gen X kids to not care about stuff and to show yeah. and to show that you cared was meant that you were pretentious. Mm-hmm. And uh, in fact, you had to signal your apathy in a lot of ways during the grunge era. At least I, I felt that. And today, the opposite's true. There's a real mm-hmm. value judgment against uh, being uh, not caring. And so, I mean, that's just one thing. I, what, one of the, what the article does say, which I think is true from a biblical and a theological and also experiential level, is that the base level of human nature doesn't really change. People are very similar to each other in in ways that we don't appreciate. In this ways, he talks about generation talk has been inflated by consulting firms, basically, who are trying to sell things to younger people. Sure. 
Well, and at the same time, to one of the points he makes, I mean, let's face it, you, for the most part, have been dealing with a pretty specialized subset of this particular generation. Mm -hmm. You know, UVA students um, may share more in common with each other than they do with other people who are of different, you know, I don't know, socioeconomic conditions sure. or something like that. And, and maybe that's, I mean, because I think that's what he's trying to say, too, is that oftentimes the, the judgments we make about a given generation are based on a very small slice of that particular generation. It's whoever we see right in front of us. When the reality is if you actually do a scientific poll of 20 year olds across the entire country, you know, you might be, maybe you would find a much uh, more acute moral sense, but, but, um, so maybe I'm talking about the culture on college campuses, that that, uh, elite college campuses, because there's plenty of, which is a small, which is a small group of people, very small group of people. Sarah, what's your observation of this sort of thing? I mean, I would just say from like a hopeful standpoint, I do actually believe like I'm around this generation and in terms of people who are minorities in terms of LGBTQ issues, in terms of women in leadership, like they are much more pro that stuff than I remember anyone being when I was that age. Mm -hmm. And so that is like, that's an interesting, and for me personally, and based on my values, a hopeful thing, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But I honest, I mean, I just, I don't agree with this article at all because I think about like, my husband had has these books he grew up with that my kids love to read. And I can't even, Dave, they are so your genre. They're so weird. They're so 70s. Like, everyone is like, got to, like, they're all animals. But anyway, it's very weird. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I read them and they feel kind of, um, I don't know, kind of like, 70s or something like just like anything goes but children's books and I think about what my students and your students grew up with which I think is um you know some of the stuff our kids grew up with but just heavily ethical environmental crisis Paw Patrol you know like that (laughs) shapes them right it makes them worry I mean I, I you know the world is on fire for them in a way that it never was for us mm. and so I I do like I mean but RJ like think about I, were, I remember growing up before the fall of the Berlin Wall and it did feel still in the mid early mid 80s like at any point a nuclear apocalypse could that's be upon true. us that's fair and I mean like I went to college 9-11 was my freshman year and um, Manand goes out of his way to say that as as people think that are such a, the Gen Z is so revolutionary and so new and all this stuff, he then yeah. he then quotes an article from fifty years ago of a the uh, someone in in the summer of love saying the new generation is absolutely radical and was changing everything and so over time you sort of are like well how much actually yeah. changes? They all became eighties yuppies <laughs> yeah 80s yeah yeah yuppies. yeah yeah I mean that is that is interesting because like whenever I hear people I I. Can't can't even like talk about sometimes about people that were coming of age like in the late 60s when they're just like everything was like amazing and alive and music and like just like the vision of where I am from was like black folks getting hit with like you know water hoses in the streets mm. and and just how different those two experiences in that time period were um and and also I mean this will sound so like hopeless but like this whole narrative I mean it's always so jarring to me this whole like narrative of peace like a Woodstock and like all that stuff and and yet so much violence happening you know right 
in front of people and they're just not a part of it. I don't know. So it's, and that's not to say like, Oh, I would have been a part of it. That's to say, no, I probably would have been a Woodstock and a bra like that. I burned, you know what I mean? Mm. But like that, we always think we're sort of the revolutionaries and it turns out like maybe we're just missing the whole thing. I don't know. We're right? actually all sellouts. Well, I mean, I yeah. don't know. No, I, I, that sounds so bleak. Well, but there's a, there's a lot of, there is some truth real. to this stuff and there's some, there's some lack truth, of the yeah. truth to it. I think that like he gives an example of the silent generation, which was the, the pre baby boomer generation. They were seen as like, <laughs> like, what are they? As like, who are they? They grew okay. up, they were teenagers in the fifties and okay. like, they just never said anything and they were sort of just happy to go along. Long, and then he lists like 30 people from like Muhammad Ali to Abby Hoffman to like Tim, Tim glorious time. Glorious time. He's yeah. like, none of these people oh, were silent. What are you talking right. about? And the, right. it, it is worth it. Maybe it's like travel. It sort of jars you out of your the, the assumptions you make that are you yeah. have to make in order to not constantly be reevaluating everything around you. Um, and Sarah, you and I were also talking about this in terms of dealing with uh, 19 to 22 year olds. Uh, although there are some different trappings and I do see a lot more sort of student activism and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, when they're, they're all just, they want to be loved and you know, oh they, my they, they're all afraid of, they're all really, yes. in my sense, they're just under so much more scrutiny than we yeah. were partially because of the internet. And I, right. I just, I, I admire the younger generation, but I also Me see too. the core struggles and the core problems and maybe this is a low anthropology thing that we're actually united generation to generation by our weaknesses our limitations and our mm. problems that are not that dissimilar though he right. does say that the internet does did mark a sort of a actual watershed in difference between digital natives and non-digital natives and sort of how they experience the world rj you're about to say something i was just gonna say you know that the article talks about using these ideas as a way to understand people, but the reality is what we do is we use these tropes as a way to judge <laughs> each other. You know, that's, that's just what we do. You know, boomer versus exennial and Gen Z versus I don't even know. You know, I don't even know what. Um, and I just I, I was thinking about that. Like, to what degree do I? you know, enforce these stereotypes or these tropes on people that I meet um, before I even meet them. And to what degree does it hinder my ability to treat them and and hear them out as an individual? And also, you know, um, thank you, Ted Lasso, to not be terribly curious about their individual experience. Because you find when you actually talk to people and get to know them and find out what their lives were actually like, it's just so much more infinitely interesting, mm-hmm. you know, than some generational, um, trope. And I, and I, I've experienced this the past couple of days, just at church, actually, we, where we've been like doing little Bible studies on parables and, and people have talked about the difference in generations and how certain generations were savers and certain were spenders and certain knew the value of money and certain others were much more comfortable with debt and making all these hyper generalizations. Um, and I don't know, it's maybe, maybe a little sad. Yeah. You know, it's like how, you know, maybe talk to someone of a different generation than yours and find out what their life is actually like, because chances are they're just doing the best they can. And there's a reason that they're making the decision that they're mm. making, um, as, as has always been true. So it just, it made me want to um, tamp down a little bit the degree to which I um, buy into any of these messages I'm receiving from the wider culture about generational difference, because it's just not helpful in interpersonal interactions. Mm. I don't think. 
Well, it certainly informs no. the way like we do church, right? I mean, this constant drumbeat of like, well, millennials like this and Gen Z like this. And, and I find that some of that stuff is descriptively true. But I also, I will say that w- the preaching something that's universal or getting, the deeper I go into my personal experience tends to be the deeper I, I the uh, more I resonate across generations and across mm-hmm. uh, uh, things. And like, you know, and most of that stuff used to has, has to do with some uh, exposure of things you're not proud of. So it's like um, the sermons that I feel like get the most response and the widest response and the deepest response almost are always about some form of human suffering that doesn't really shift that much according to generation. And so we're plumbing something deeper, but that also cares deeply about a person's individual experience. So it's like a, it's that beautiful kind of paradox. I don't like that word or tension. I, I don't know. What Do you guys have that experience in preaching? <laughs> I mean, I think I have had that experience in preaching. The other thing, like, and I've said this before because I think it all the time, but church is the last multi-generational space, really, that we have left, period. I mean, like, you just there's just not another place. You walk in and there's an 85-year-old and an 8-month-old that don't know each other, that aren't related. Mm. Um, mm. And it's wild. They're both it's kind of totally, supposed to be there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's so wild. And there are people I... I interact with all the time that I'm like, I would probably not have a conversation with you outside of here. I like, I'm baffled by like your story and baffled by maybe the assumptions I made about you before. I mean, guys, a couple weeks ago, a woman who shall remain nameless, who um, does not listen to the podcast. Also like I'm there's the priest's wife, not the priest. And it wasn't confession. She just mentioned to me casually that at 80 years old, She's getting her first facelift. I mean, that is wild. You just walk into church and 80 year old women tell you about getting a facelift. Like I just, I I think, um, I mean, I love the idea that some of this generational stuff could come down. I, I do, Dave, I think I wouldn't feel maybe have as strong an oppositional kind of thing against this if I didn't work with college kids. Right. I mean, I think you really do, you do see, see there's a big heart this in a really clear way, but, um, but also church is this beautiful place where generations just get that, that was boundaries just get torn down. And thank God. I mean, as people who have lost so much family in the past year, thank God. Cause we walk in there and you know, we're just held. Yeah. It's also a place where whatever you post to social media, doesn't necessarily matter because most people aren't going to know it. it. It is it is striking when you see people really getting along in church and you're friends with both of them on Facebook right. and you're like you're like ooh right. if you, you know, only knew. It's, it's amazing amazing <laughs> right. amazing what happens when people actually interact uh, you know on an interpersonal level rather than just through uh, some angry you know medium. well let's um, we're going to talk a, yeah. about um, a little more about human nature. In this article that Arthur Brooks wrote for The Atlantic about the difference between hope and optimism, I believe we may have surfaced this difference when we did a little mini episode about hope a long time ago. But uh, this is a a kind of an update on it. Uh, For starters, hope is better, Brooks writes. And then he gives this uh, example. He says, during the Vietnam War, a U.S. Navy vice admiral who was held for more than seven years in a North Vietnamese prison noticed a surprising trend among his fellow inmates. Some of them survived the appalling conditions. Others didn't. Those who didn't tended to be the most optimistic of the group. As the Vice Admiral James Stockdale later told the business author Jim Collins, they were the ones who said, we're going to be out by Christmas. And Christmas would come, and Christmas would go, and Easter would come, and Easter would go, and then Thanksgiving, and then it would be Christmas again, and they they died of a broken heart. 
Uh, Brooks says, I have noticed a less dire version of this pattern over the past year and a half as COVID-19 has slowly transformed from a temporary inconvenience into a new way of life. Those who have struggled the most have been the optimists always predicting a return to normalcy, only to be disappointed as the pandemic drags on. Some of the people who have done the best have been downright pessimistic about the outside world, uh, but they've paid less attention to external circumstances and focused more on what they could do to persevere. There's a word for believing you can make things better without distorting reality, not optimism, but hope. Just as Stockdale found, optimism, isn't often, is, optimism often isn't the best way to improve your well-being. The research shows that hope is a far more potent force. He then concludes by saying, optimism is the belief that things will turn out all right. Hope makes no such assumption, but is a conviction that one can act to make things better in some way. Hope is more than a, quote, nice to have for uh, well-being. Lacking it is disastrous. One might argue that having hope is mostly a matter of luck. You were born with it. This might be partially true for optimism. One study finds it is 36% genetic. Whether hope has a genetic link or not, most philosophical and religious traditions regard it as an active choice, even a commandment. Indeed, it is a theological virtue in Christianity. It implies voluntary action, not just happy prediction. Uh, so the difference between optimism and hope, I think he honestly gets Christianity completely wrong here, but I, yeah. uh, yes. he, he, he does say, I do understand that the optimism is sort of a happy prediction that things are going to turn out okay. And hope is the, 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 in specific instances and hope is a, is a more lasting, um, the, the final word will be, will be a good one, even if the conviction of things. Conviction. Yeah, tell me what you think about this. I, the conflation of hope with action feels like a strange yeah, place I, I, to I go. I mean, God gives yeah, hope, like not um, God is hope, you know? Yes. Uh, yes. Sorry. Continue, RJ. No, that was exactly my, my thought was, was to say hope means hope is doing something about it. Like, you know, Envision a better. He has. He lays out like a three or four point plan where it's like envision a better future, take action, you know. And like if hope is just about my ability to envision and act, like oh man, like God help me. Um, I mean, I think there is a difference between blind optimism and hope, but to me, hope, hopeful action has to spring from an attitude of hopefulness, which has to be rooted in some kind of belief that defies the current circumstances, right? That, that says there's something more going on here. Um, I, you know, I do think, you know, not to be strange, I think I've been able to maintain a certain amount of hope during this pandemic. I'm getting a little tired, to be honest with you. I'm really ready for it to be over. Um, and the hope has led me to do some to, 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 to do some things, to be in action. But I think I think what it boils down to is is do you do you think that something is happening, that God is present and active, that he is doing something even in the midst of difficult circumstances? Because if you think he's with you and he's doing something for your good and for the good of those you care about and the good of the world, then it gives you a little bit of motivation to maybe try and you know, put one foot in front of the other and keep moving, keep moving forward. You know, if you, if, if, mm. if you think you're alone and everything is meaningless, um, then you're, you're sunk. So I, I, yeah, I think hope is something that it ha like you said, it has to come from outside of you. If you're counting on yourself to, to 
bring about hope through your action. That it's, it sounds like a, just a very um, quick path to um, deep flimsy, depression. flimsy, very Honestly. flimsy. Yeah. Sarah, I can't imagine you have anything to say about this subject. <laughs> oh, it's funny. I, I have to say this to get it out of the way because otherwise I'll just think it. But I was thinking so much about your dad. Uh, this morning, Dave, because uh, there was a helicopter that was like hovering. I'm sure it was like for traffic. It was like 645 in the morning in Houston, but pretty close to the house. And Annie was out there with me this morning and she was like, I think it's an alien. And I kept thinking like just about like that whole notion of like Jesus came from the outside, that grace has to come mm. from the outside and that like there's something really beautiful about looking up to aliens with hope, you know what mm. I mean? I don't know. I just, but, but I, the, the, the real thing for me, um, is this sort of weird dance I found myself doing with grief. I do want to say I pulled this up. So there's a book that I cannot recommend enough, cannot recommend enough has changed my life. Um, that I'm mm. reading about grief. Uh, it's called the other side of sadness, what the new science of bereavement tells us about life after loss. Um, I, I, I just, I can't. And if you're a minister for sure, you should read it, but it's so good. Um, but this idea of, um, I don't know of, of hopelessness in a lot of the grief stuff that I see, the secular grief stuff is very popular right now. So, uh, you know how there are like people out there that give like deep theological advice and have literally no education. Well, there's people that do that for grief too. <laughs> and, um, they have no therapeutic education at all. They've just had someone die and they've got a lot of thoughts. And, um, there's a really popular Instagram account I follow. And she, this woman who runs it posts some very helpful things, but she posted something recently that was like, it is hopeless. Don't let anyone tell you there's any hope. And I was like, my first response was Jesus, clearly not Christian. Mm. You know, like that was like clearly maybe, I mean, not even religious, right? Like it was like, whoa, what a kind of scorched earth thing to put out there. And I know that she's trying to like run up against this narrative of, um, you know, that people have to be hopeful that everything's going to be better. But it just was like very, um, it was sad for me hmm. that other people who were in grief were going to see that and think it was, think, think that that was the end of the paragraph. Do you know what I mean? Like that, that was the final word. Yeah. Um, gosh, but, but all that stuff is like, it's very tricky. It's like, <laughs> you know, it's very tricky. Yeah. The, um, I, I mean, I think as a Christian, you just don't do, there's always hope. <laughs> like it's, yeah. it, it doesn't mean you, paper over uh, reality with, with whether you believe it whether or not. Whether you believe it or not. <laughs> right. Like, that's yeah. the gift. It's like I, I, that is the yeah. gift. I think, whether you, whether or not, you don't have to believe it actually at no. all. It's an objective yeah. truth. Yeah. I can be pessimistic about human beings without yeah. being an unhopeful person because I, my hope is not rooted in human beings. It's right. a, it's a, it's a, ex, ex, it's, 
extra. It's out external. Right. And I think that that's a, um, just a missing link. Uh, but they, but I, they're, they're I trying to lose hope when I'm optimistic about human beings. Yeah. And they're, they're what it sounds like that influencer is probably in that. I, I can't say for sure, but sort of trying to get away from that, like toxic positivity stuff. That's like, sure. You yeah. always yeah. have to, there's some relief in someone saying it's okay to be hopeless. Cause let's face it, all of us are sure. a little hopeless sometimes. But that yeah. doesn't you know? mean there isn't hope. Yeah. That I mean, right. that's like, yeah, it's not this then permission to sort of you, that you are the final authority on these things. Like if anything, right. your prescriptive right. perspective is quite limited. Right. Um, yeah. I don't know. That, well, but Sarah, this I clearly, you know, hits your personal experience a little bit more immediately. It does. It's a weird, I mean, um, I feel like I'm living in these two worlds. I should say what I mean that are like the expectations of Christianity that that puts on your grief. Mm -hmm. And, and this book actually was very freeing from both of these things. And then the expectation of sort of like secular layman therapy Mm -hmm. that puts on your grief. A lot of which is, I won't go into it, but sort of founded in Freud and is like very not scientifically based at all. And there's no research around. So the stages of grief, all that stuff is like wrong, um, which is really fascinating to read. Um, and one thing that I found very encouraging as someone who makes a shit ton of jokes is, um, they're actually, if you were going to make stages, there should be a whole stage called humor because it is actually incredibly important both for your brain to kind of take a beat. Mm-hmm. Um, and also if you remember, you can still have joy, but often in our culture, and this has definitely been my experience when you have joy or laugh or, or funny or whatever, people are like, Oh, you're in denial. Yeah. You're, <laughs> right. And so it's like, it, which is a really heavy, hard thing, you know? I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a weird dance. This book definitely though has kind of freed me up more to, to understand that, um, that I can just like opt out of the dance, mm. you know, like I can just be like, this sounds is, incredible. This is my Gosh. It. Yeah. It's very good. Always looking for resources like that. You sort of, not that books can solve everything, but it's good to have something on the shelf that you can actually yes, punt to safely. Sure. You know. Um, yeah. Yes. Yeah. RJ, were you about to say one more thing? Uh, it was just the stages of grief thing. There was. Did you hear that podcast? Was it on Radio Lab recently about the woman Kubler Ross yeah. who came up with the stages yeah. of grief and how that was never her intent? Right. And of course, what happened was it was a, a commodification, mm-hmm. you know, of something that she had observed, and really she was one of the first people in. American history to listen to dying people and take mm-hmm. them seriously and not shove them off into the corner. Mm-hmm. And um, and then she ended up being a really weird spiritualist and medium and and I think ended up abusing people. It's very weird. <laughs> but the first half of her career, she was doing good things. And she and it was never intended to be this like linear five-step yeah. thing. It was like, look, these are some of the things I see people who are um mourning and actually mourning death. Yeah. specifically mourning yeah. their own death yeah. coming to terms with their own death yeah. like first day they, they're like i'm not gonna and, and but they're fluid and they go back and forth and so just but another the, example i mean i of, think um, so my you know, my issue with her specifically because if we're gonna go there yeah. we're gonna go there um, <laughs> let's do it is uh that anger is one of the stages and i've had people be angry with me that i'm not angry huh 
and mm. I find that really pisses me off. <laughs> then I get angry at them. <laughs> they get Do angry you know at what that, I mean? Yeah. Like, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, but I don't, it's, I don't think she would ever said you have to be no, angry. I don't, I think, so yeah. it's not her. It's like what we, what, what yeah. we all, we're all like armchair therapists now, right? Because we all yeah. share this information. It's not Calvin. It's the Calvinists. Right. <laughs> exactly. It's, it's not Jesus. It's the Christians. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of where, that's what grief <laughs> but it's, feels it's like. It's a classic me. example of what, of the damage that can be done when a description is turned into a prescription. When when she was trying to describe things, people who are yearning for control and a, you know, a a path, a linear progression. An end, right? An end. end. They're out of pain. If I can do all these things. Yeah. Give me, give me optimism. It's not because you you just want to be. Give me optimism. Exactly. It's not, you're not just trying to be like a. Tell me I'll be out by Easter. You know, like, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Tell me I'll be out by Easter. What do I have to do? Right. What do I have to do to get it? When will she call? She won't call until you stop caring if she's going to call. Here, Sorry, these are the a, fruit a, of the spirit. That's a swinger. Let me, let me tell you the fruit of the spirit. Okay, yeah. I got to manifest every single one of them, especially patience, I mean, really fast. <laughs> RJ, now. I really like that though, because I've had that same thought of like, you know, I remember when I was dating, and of course at Ole Miss, like, you, you go and you get yourself a husband. Okay. Like that is protocol and it's a part of your graduation. You get a ring and then you get married. And I remember <laughs> thinking like, well, am I going to, is that going to happen for me? You know? And like, what's, you know, will I, you know, will I be a, a spinster for the rest of my life? And, um, at, you know, I think it was at like 20. Um, <laughs> but, um, like that there was, I remember people saying a lot, you know, and people say that all the time, well, the moment you stop looking and I, th- it's a funny thing that that some version of that goes to my head with grief, mm. like the moment you stop thinking about it, you know, and trying to control it. And it's like, I don't know, mm-hmm. it, you know, it's, a, it's all a game to control the uncontrollable. I mean, I mean, I'm talking to you as someone who like three nights ago opened up my parents urn and put my hands in so I could touch their bones. Oh my goodness. Cause I miss them. <laughs> And I want to hold their bodies. And I'm thankful I have their ashes. Oh, Sarah. Like, you know, I mean, like, yeah, really, wow. truly. Like, so when I see these, like, this is how grief should go. It's like, where's the stage where you reach into the urn and put your hand in their ashes and weep? I don't know. I don't know where that stage wow. is, you know, but I'm thankful I have their ashes and I'm thankful they love me so much. Well, so. gosh. Um, I almost want to end the podcast there, but I also know that this 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 last story kind of builds on that. The, although it's in the it's, it's like it's a little bit of like a, a, a mirror. We continue our. It's descent. a photo negative of that. Um, this is an mm. article called "Death and Forgiveness" by yeah. Joseph Keegan. It appeared in Comment, and what so good, a Dave. what a story. This is what he writes. He says, in January of 2018, I took a plane to Albuquerque to sit in a hospital with my dying father. To say my dad and I weren't close is an understatement. We had cut ties when I was 12. Rebuilt them for a time in my early 20s, only to have them quickly fall apart again. He was a very lapsed Catholic who, like my mother, had given up on the tradition of his family long before I was born. He, he loved jokes, puns especially, and had a gift for charming strangers. He also had a history of heroin addiction, infidelity, conspiracism, uh, and cruelty. My mother was his fourth wife. I remained the only one of my siblings still willing to deal with him in this state. When I got there, I found him feeble and weary, surrounded by a jungle of tubes and beeping monitors, his broad shoulders reduced to a skeletal parody of their former strength. Enough of a spark remained, however, to rekindle all the old family hostilities. My brother began packing for the drive from Memphis to Albuquerque, but Dad refused to see him and demanded he not come. 
My sister almost seemed happy to hear his, of his suffering. She said she felt nothing, no sadness, hatred, or pity. But her voice betrayed a whisper of excitement, as if she believed he was finally getting what he deserved. Dad didn't care to talk to her either way. My sibling's resentment of my father was entirely rational. He had harmed them immeasurably, often deliberately. It made sense that the hurt they felt would beget anger. Why, then, couldn't I shake the sense that this account, however reasonable, was wrong? There was some crucial principle we were all missing that could have helped us overcome our animosity and frustration toward one another, that could have granted some sense of unity to our fragmented family, something I suspected, like forgiveness. We needed to find a way to forgive our father and each other. So in order to figure out what forgiveness might mean and what its origins might be, I turned, as I always do, to the books. He's a Greek philosopher, um, he's, and he says the consensus among the Greeks, it seems, is that, it, that if forgiveness is morally valuable, it is because anger gums up the gears of one's own flourishing and distracts one from more noble pursuits, such as engaging in politics or grasping for honors. One might express concern mm. for another if their spiritual greatness matches one's own, but concern for the good of another in full knowledge of their flaws, even in their wretchedness, that is alien to the Greek moral imagination. Keegan then goes through, uh, he looks into Buddhism, um, and he was disappointed in it because the specificity and particularity of another person disappears altogether and gets subsumed into a system that one carefully maintains like a rock garden. It implied that his estranged dad was merely the occasion of his anger, no different from then the aggressive driver on the road. Yet Keegan uh, is sort of apprehensive to look for forgiveness in Christianity, which he believed was, quote, too good to be true because it papered over the real ugliness of the world with a happy message about hope and love. <laughs> I wake up every morning and I'm like, it's too good to be true. Just uh, if, it's, if it's not, it's not Christianity. The, um, if a f- but a friend convinced him to read the Gospel of Luke. Mm. He reads it and he's sort of blown away, RJ. It's like what you've talked about. It's so crazy. All these educated people never touched it. who haven't read like the foundational work of Western civilization. Like what is wrong with you? It, like the most popular fasc- book like, ever written by education, far. That's pretty fascinating. Yes. And you've never even like, you think you know what it's about and you have, oh, it's unbelievable. This is what he says. Anyway, I finally continue. found evidence of forgiveness, but only in the Bible. What was I supposed to do with that? <sighs> If the brilliant philosophers had over <laughs> if the brilliant philosophers had overlooked something that only appeared later in the Gospels, troubling conclusions would follow. It would mean that our most important tool for discovering truths about the world, which is our reason, had failed in one crucial respect. And if so, and we could not think our way to forgiveness on our own, it might have to come to us by some other route, arriving what? from somewhere outside ourselves. A helicopter. I had found a little hole in the structure of things, a place where human reason had been unable to go. And it was through this tiny gap that I first caught a glimpse of God. Now he goes on. That's a, there's a, there's, I know it's a long reading, but here's, it's so here's the rest of it. The ancient philosophers of Greece, Rome, and the East were not stupid. They were some of the smartest, most perceptive and thoughtful people who have ever walked on this planet. And yet for each and every one of them, the idea that we should love our enemies would have registered as self-evidently absurd. They might insist that we avoid having our souls poisoned by grudges, but the idea that we should love people who harm us would be ridiculous to them. And yet here in Luke, Christ tells us to love our enemies. Later, he shows us what it means. 
Hanging on the cross, in the process of being tortured and executed, Christ looks down onto the people responsible for his death and prays to God to forgive them. He is not ridding himself of anger to achieve spiritual tranquility. He is not trying to restore the balance of the universe. He's not trying to showcase his own virtue. His what stage of grief is he in? Okay, sorry. Keep going. <laughs> his concern in the midst of his execution is for the good of those who have wronged him. And it is entirely for their sake that he utters his prayer of forgiveness. He talks about then going to a, a Catholic church and being kind of disappointed in the Christian community, like many of us are, and finally ending up uh-huh. a friend of his is an Episcopalian and invites him to come hear this friend preach. And he said, I had not been thinking much about God, and so I attended the service to support this friend. This is such a great description. <laughs> Disappointments <laughs> with churches in the intervening months had left me uninspired about Christian community. <laughs> Immediately upon entry, I found their excessive welcome signage a bit too forced. So their liberal politeness a bit too cloying. I didn't sing the hymns. I wasn't thrilled about being there. But then the readings began. God answering Job from the whirlwind, describing his laying the foundations of the world and setting a limit to the waters. Psalm 107, a call to God while sailing on a tumultuous ocean. Jesus in Mark, stilling the raging sea, and the Apostle Paul imploring me, now is the acceptable time, now is the day of salvation. I can't remember exactly what I felt sitting in that pew, but I had heard, it seems, what I needed to hear. I stared at the floor for a while, the problem of the universe, in Melville's terminology, revolving in me. But when the time came, I stood, kneeled in the aisle, walked to the altar, and the body of Christ, the bread of heaven, reached out my hands. Just read the damn book. <laughs> I mean, it's, yeah, there's that. But it's also just such a beautiful, I mean, do you call this, I'm so, this is like, do you call this apologetics? Like, it feels like apologetics to me a little bit. Like, Well, it helps for someone who really knows what they're talking about, about Greek uh, philosophy yeah. for me to say, hey, it really, the, these youth ministers throughout history have not been kidding around. Like, the the idea that you would be told to love your enemies, show yeah. grace to those in their worst moments, it, it was anathema to... And it still is. I mean, I, I'm thinking about a friend of mine who was, like, going through some wedding drama. Repulsive, yeah. Yeah, and she asked me, well, how would you handle this person? And I was like, well... I'd probably call her and like see how she was doing and like have a conversation and maybe apologize for this or that thing. She's like, I can't do that. And it, I mean, like, it's still, you know, we, it's, we hear these things like, and he kind of talks about these tropes of like turning their cheek and forgiving your neighbor. And it's like, well, and, and they're real like demands of us. Mm. They're real demands of us, you know? And also they're real demands of us in marriage. Like, as I'm sitting here on my 15th wedding anniversary, like one of the hardest things I've had to learn to do in marriage is just to say, I'm sorry. Mm. It's so hard. And honestly, the only thing that gets me to say it is Jesus. A hundred percent of the time. It is not a marriage book I have read. It is not advice from a therapist. It's like, well, Jesus loves you and you're an asshole. So, you know, you could probably say you're sorry because you love this guy. You know, I mean, I just, it's, it is still such a hard thing. 
right? I mean, it is this. And that's, it's so but funny so, that's to someone you love. I mean, he's yeah. trying to talk about someone yeah. who has been, who has hurt, who has willfully, has, has carved a mammoth wake through the world yes. and his children's lives and has actively yes. done them wrong. And there's no way to minimize this with uh, talking about his own circumstances or his, he, he's just, he's a kind of a bastard, this father. And at least the, yes. the portrait we get is that he yeah. was time and time game. again, yeah. knew what the right thing was to do and yes. did the complete opposite. Yes. I, I have, um, <laughs> I have a family member who, um, has said all the wrong things, uh, since my parents have died. And, um, uh, has said, uh, he, he does not listen to this. I'm certain. Uh, but, and if he does, uh, Hey, um, <laughs> but has said like <laughs> about, uh, something about, uh, my father, he, if he, if he would have known how much attention he would have gotten in the wake of my father's death, he might've done it himself. What? Which he said is a joke. Wait, what? I know. <sighs> and this individual has dealt with a tremendous amount of dic- addiction, um, a tremendous amount of issues in his own life with his own children and just says really painfully wacky things, right? Always has. Guess what? Both your parents on a car accident, not going to get better. Okay. And I am so thankful I'm Christian because it sucks when those things get said, but also it gives me a vernacular to say like, I mean, we lo- we love you, and I don't know what you're doing right now. It's kind of weird, but we love you, and we're glad you're at the table. You know, mm. like, and I I would have had zero ability to have done that if it weren't for the cross. Mm. Zero ability. It would have only been anger, you know, and fighting, and like like when the family could have come together and had this beautiful thing, it would have been like vitriol. And instead it was like, Oh, that was a wacky thing to say. Well, anyway, you know, like, it's just like, I, I, I just, I think it's, it is just anyway, I could go on and on and on, but RJ, what do you, what do you, what's going through your mind? You have to deal with situations like this as, you know, as a person who buries family members. Oh yeah, uh, I don't. That's what, what were I was thinking? thinking. I mean, first of all, I, well, I just thought it was funny. Um, did you did you know Maggie Blake at all in Focus? I do did. You remember yeah, her? I do. So she became a Christian because she was had gone through something very painful, and she actually went to like you know Nepal or Tibet or something to go visit with a Buddhist monk about how she could forgive. And when she got there, he was like, "What is forgiveness?" Forgiveness is nothing. Like, it doesn't matter. Like, forget, oh forget God. about it. I'm going to fall under the and table. She, and then she became a Christian, you know? Yeah. And then because she, she became a Christian because she was looking for a way to forgive and only Jesus gave her a path to forgive this person who had who had wronged and her. And this is what happens when you um, travel, right? This is what happens when you travel. <laughs> hey, so wait a minute. Okay. So wait a second. Um, <laughs> it's just part of the stages, no. Sarah. <laughs> I was thinking on a more ma- on a more macro level, and I think I maybe said this uh, before, but I'm just always shocked when there are people who um, are just wonderful, morally upstanding, lovely people who want to have nothing to do with Jesus at all when they don't realize that everything they believe in is true comes a hundred percent from Jesus That's and so not from anywhere else. Yeah. And like, yes, our world is broken and messed up and divided and 
could be so much worse. <laughs> you know, just, it just, you read, I, it's the whole Tom Holland yeah. thing. You know, you read about what, what Greco-Roman civilization was like and you're like, oh my mm-hmm. God, it was Kill awful. the weak, kill the weak, the outcast. And, mm-hmm. yeah. Kill the yes. weak and they have no value. Yeah. And why would you ever do anything for anybody else unless it was going to come back to you? Yeah. And, um, and we still clearly, like, that's a big part of human nature. And that's a big part of how we live today. And, um, yeah, I think sometimes we, you know, as someone who, who is part of a church, I, you know, we all, I mean, I love my church to death. I do. And I love the people and you, but you also wonder like how your church is going to land when someone who just walks in the door, like this guy who's doing his friend a favor, you know, um, but to see the Holy spirit at work in this guy's life, like God is just like, Mm-mm, I'm not letting you go, man. You're mine. I'm getting you. <laughs> You know, God is just after this guy, like, you're going to read the gospel of Luke. Mm -hmm. You know, you're going to get your, I'm going to get you back in a church. And when you least expect it, I'm just going to sucker punch you with love you can't imagine, Mm -hmm. you know, and that, and that kind of goes back to that whole thing. Um, You only get it when you least expect it, sort of, you know, I just keep thinking like, God's like, you're going to walk into this like somewhat lame church (laughs) with a giant poster on the wall that says, we don't make you check your brains at the door, but guess what? You're going to check your brain and your heart's going to fall because they're not actually in charge of this church. I am. Go where reason cannot go somewhere. Again, it's the difference between hope and optimism. Optimism, I think, is sort of, we can figure this out together. Yeah. And uh, we have the tools, but hope is saying that like, in fact, we when your when your brain fails or is so caught up with its own biases and uh, disease, uh, yeah. that 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 God operates beyond uh, reason and and yeah. in the realm of the heart. Yeah, I was like, know, and, and yeah, sorry, sorry, what are you saying, RJ? No, like the Mister Rogers story you told when he was in that church. He was a young, you know, uh, seminary, listening to the sermon he thought was the worst sermon he had ever heard in his life. And he looks next to him, and like the person next Wasn't to him is like wife? weeping yeah. bitter tears, something like oh. that. And he's like, "Oh my god, I'm a, I'm a jerk. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm the worst person ever." Well, I've um, I love this this article by Keegan. I mean, it kind of so gives beautiful. you a whole primer on uh, Greek philosophy that I. Does, kind of forgotten, and he talks about what what Aristotle and Epicurus did, and it was it was. Um, uh, if you went to Mississippi Public School, you'll be reading this for the first time. But it's good; well, you should read it. And it's so hopeful. It's so hopeful too, because it just nobody converted this guy. It was just a hundred percent God, so you know. And I also say for all those people out there who are thinking like. Maybe I should invite my friend to church, even though it's going to be really embarrassing. And maybe I can just get him or her to do me a favor by showing up. It's like, well, maybe you don't know. You don't know the the the, the soil that has been tilled and the seed that's been planted in that person's life yeah. and what's going on with them. And, yeah, people um, never really tell you what's you, actually happening, right? I mean, no, and that you can never. T- and at the same time, don't ever take credit for anything, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Because God is always working um, behind the scenes. So. Oh, that's a beautiful note to end on. Um, oh, uh, I just heard back from Tom Holland, who will be speaking for us in April. So, oh my God, wow. Spider-Man? Awesome. <laughs> Spider-Man will be there. But also the British historian uh, and author of Dominion, Tom Holland. And uh, I'm hearing back from other so people, and, and we're, we're trying to put together a two-year plan for it. So. Oh, gosh. Yeah, because it's just, uh, who knows what what COVID will allow. But we're, we're going forward with that April 28th to the 30th. Oh, I don't have it written down yet, so that's Write good. it down. 
please. Um, okay, you two. Thank you so much. We'll talk to you in a couple weeks and have a you know glorious October. Uh, Sarah, good luck with the next stage. As you. Oh, mm-hmm. thank you. I will let you know how I get. The next fifteen or... years. Mm-hmm. All right. Bye, you guys. Bye. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.embird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info at Audio production for The Mocking Cast is provided by TJ Hester. And if you like what you've heard, please drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating or review. Until next time. Praise the Lord. Praise